X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day, June 10th, 1963, John F. Kennedy signed into law the Equal Pay Act of 1963, taking aim at wage disparity based on sex. And in 1964, today, back in the day, the U.S. Senate broke a 75-day filibuster against the Civil Rights Act, leading to that bill's passage. Today on The Local, Your Quick Six, Kate Kay is back with her research on contact tracing, and the new Senate Majority Leader of Oregon, Rob Wagner, joins us in a discussion on racial equity, on moving policy reform in the coming legislative session. Right now, we don't have uh, a functioning democracy. And first up, it is today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Ted Wheeler presented his police reforms at a news conference, announced a plan to redirect over $7 million from the police bureau and $5 million to other city funds to invest in communities of color, announced plans to dissolve the Gun Violence Reduction Task Force, that used to be called the Gang Task Force, banned the use of chokeholds, and changing policies around consent and traffic stop searches. Keep in mind that $7 million is a little bit less than 3% of the money slated to be budgeted for the police bureau. For those advocating to defund police, well, this would defund police by a little less than 3%. In the current draft, the police bureau is slated to receive $244.6 million. Mayor Wheeler serves as the police commissioner, says that plans are in the works. Here's his quote. For too long, the city of Portland has underinvested in communities of color, specifically our black community. My privilege shielded me from difficult and uncomfortable truths on our history and society, end quote. The changes were announced after 12 nights of protests throughout the city in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by police and yesterday's funeral. If you didn't weep when you watched his daughter say, my daddy changed the world a few days ago, well then check to make sure your soul and your heart are intact. Joanne Hardesty said she plans to propose using the diverted funds to expand the pilot to have six Portland street response teams work in six areas around the city. We'll have more on that, I'm sure, very soon. And reporting from Dirk Vanderhart, federal judge now has placed formal restrictions on tear gas at Portland protests. An order issued just last night, U.S. District Court Judge Marco Hernandez granted a 14-day TRO, a temporary restraining order, on the police bureau's use of the gas. And in his order, he wrote this, The declarations in this case show that PPB, the Portland Police Bureau, has regularly used tear gas to disperse peaceful protesters. It is likely that it will continue to do so. The risk of irreparable harm is further heightened by the context in which these protests are occurring. But wait, here's the catch. you got to read the fine print. Here's the order. The court therefore orders that PPB, the Portland Police Bureau, be restricted from using tear gas or its equivalent except as provided by its own rules generally, which means the police are still able to use tear gas during the two-week restraining order. They just have to follow their own rules. What this allows is gives plaintiffs a fast track to a contempt hearing. If there is use of tear gas, then you don't have to wait for yet another case. You can go straight to the judge and ask for a contempt of court ruling based on a violation of the judge's order and say, hey, that wasn't according to the police officer's rules, and you might be able to get a quick decision from the judge in that instance. It was characterized as a half a win for the plaintiffs. In COVID news, it's back on the rise a bit. Oregon is about to hit 5,000 known cases. By the way, it is known in presumptive cases. I say known cases because it's shorter. If there ends up being a big relevant delta between presumptive and known cases, I'll let you know. The Oregon Health Authority reported 620 new cases in the past week. And the state's largest and second largest daily case totals of 146 on Sunday and 114 on Monday. Some officials have pointed to higher levels of testing as adding to the increase. That said, though... 
The number of Oregonians in the hospital with COVID-19 stood at its lowest June 2nd with 46, but that number had climbed to 65 people by Monday. That's a significant increase, at least in terms of percentage. Most Oregon counties reopened May 15th, and Governor Kate Brown last week approved 29 to move into a second phase. Only Multnomah County has yet to enter phase one. Officials have asked for Brown's approval, effective Friday. Salem City Councilors are commenting on the protest. For the first time in recorded history, Salem police used tear gas to control crowds. The impact of these events was apparent during Monday's Salem City Council meeting. Three councilors read a statement condemning, and I'm quoting, the pseudo-military presence downtown. Several councilors called for a review of police actions during the protests, and the council voted unanimously to conduct DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion training for all new councilors, sitting councilors, and heads of departments. The impact of the protests and police's response was apparent in the city's proposed fiscal year 2021 budget. All 19 of the public comments submitted urged councilors to cut spending for police and use the funds elsewhere. Anybody else surprised they only got 19 public comments on the Salem budget? It lets you know that if you're active, your voice can get heard. It's not always drowned out. Former city councilor Holly Oaks Miller said, and here's the quote, Now is the time to begin the work, to divest from police and invest in areas that actually make our city safer, such as increased funding for social workers, mental health, drug treatment, and housing our houseless neighbor. The council voted to meet on June 22nd for a vote on whether to adopt the budget. Portland Public Schools are going to cut teachers and administrative jobs. The district will eliminate 13 elementary PE and 23 classroom teaching positions and some vice principals. That's slicing $1.4 million out of the budget for vice principals in the schools. The proposed cuts also take aim at central administrative offices, taking $7 million from there. Board member Michelle DePass said that despite the cuts, the budget still reflects a commitment to racial justice. Several board members had concerns over the proposed cuts to P.E. teachers. The district already had cut costs, furloughing staff every Friday from May to the end of June, saving about $10 million to be pushed ahead to the next year. And Portland Public Schools made other cuts, including freezing purchases, banning travel, and instituting a hiring freeze, which should save about $8.9 million for the 2020 to 2021 school year. By the way, get used to it. It's going to be really weird saying 2020-2020-2021 and not knowing how many 20s you're supposed to say. We're going to be in on this together for some portion of the coming decade. We will do our best. The school board will discuss the proposed budget at a virtual meeting on Thursday, June 11th, and will adopt it at another virtual meeting Tuesday, June 23rd, 2020, to be ready for the 2020-2021 school year. Good news. Canada is easing coronavirus border restrictions, allowing immediate family in. So I guess you can flee to Canada, but only if your family is already there. It's a slight easing of border restrictions enacted due to the coronavirus pandemic. Trudeau, the prime minister there, good looking guy, said anyone entering the country will be required to quarantine for 14 days or face serious penalties. The immigration minister said limited exception will apply to spouses common law partners, dependent children, not independent children, parents, and legal guardians. And Adidas. You probably say Adidas, but, you know, it's named after a guy named Adi Dossler. Adidas has promised lasting change. The company promised that 30% of new hires will be black or Latinx, and Adidas said it will spend $20 million over the next four years for programs that support the African-American community. It's Adidas on my feet, hot top on low. And Uncle Cliffy, that's not just what some of us call him, that's what he uses for his Twitter handle. Former trailblazer Cliff Robinson wants an apology from the city of Portland for a racial profiling incident back in 1997. 
Here's what his communications manager had to say on social media, and here's the quote. In the summer of 1997, Portland Trailblazer Clifford Robinson, his brothers and friends, were the subject of blatant racial profiling by the Portland, Oregon police. Robinson was seen entering his vehicle with paintball guns. The cops were called by someone who reported that Robinson and his party had assault rifles, and a public safety alert was broadcast on local and national media. Robinson's vehicle, along with his occupants, was subjected to a paramilitary-style blockade near the Portland waterfront, which was widely publicized. Heavily armed Portland police did not find assault rifles in Robinson's vehicle for obvious reasons. There weren't any. The Post asked for people to sign a petition demanding the city of Portland apologize. And shout out to Sherry Dunn, friend of X-Ray and outgoing CEO of Dress for Success. She's leaving there at the end of June to start her own consultant firm, focusing on workforce inclusion. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. Oregon's reopening rules require that only certain types of businesses must gather names and contact information from customers for COVID-19 contact tracing purposes. Contact tracing is a tool of surveillance, and civil liberties advocates fought it next door in Washington, where plans requiring customer logs for infection tracing were overturned. X-Ray reporter Kate Kay dug into the details with public health experts, business representatives, and the ACLU. Portland and Multnomah County have a ways to go before reopening the local economy, but reopening in the rest of Oregon is underway. To protect against the spread of COVID-19, there are rules requiring that employees wear masks and specific guidance about social distancing and customer capacity. But only certain types of businesses here are required to gather names and contact information from customers for contact tracing purposes. Personal services like nail salons, tattoo shops, and massage therapy places have to do it. So do fitness centers and gyms, child care centers, and summer school and day camps for kids. Restaurants, on the other hand, do not have to keep customer logs with names and contact information. Neither do lots of other businesses. Those that are required to keep customer registries would have to provide customer information to Oregon public health officials if requested. And they'd be out of compliance if they were to serve customers without gathering their contact information. Contact tracers would use it to identify people who may have been exposed and therefore at risk of contracting COVID-19. Oregon's contact tracing efforts do not involve any sort of tracking technologies or mobile apps, but manual contact tracing is a tool of surveillance. When Oregon authorities first floated the idea of requiring all workplaces to consider keeping customer logs, the restaurant and lodging industries balked. The Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Industry, the OLRA, said in a letter sent to Governor Kate Brown that the group was adamantly opposed to a requirement to keep customer registries. The organization said they understood the value of contact tracing, but they said requiring staff to gather contact information from patrons would, quote, prove to be problematic. It could result in confrontations with customers, they said. After the ORLA criticized the plan, the state swiftly changed its draft guidance. Oregon's final rules do not require that restaurants or hotels keep customer registries for COVID-19 contact tracing. But some questioned why only some types of businesses have to keep customer registries. Andrea Montera, a massage therapist in Hillsborough, wondered if some industries just don't have as much political or economic clout as others. Montera. I, I hate to say that uh, it's it, it, it economically 
influenced, but I, that's what it appears to me. The state's decision makes sense from a public health perspective, said Dr. Melissa Sutton. She's a senior health advisor for the Oregon Health Authority. She said personal services and gyms are more likely to meet requirements for risk. Sutton. If you're going for a massage or a facial, um, you're going to be one-on-one with someone, typically within six feet and typically for longer than 15 minutes. So from a contact tracing perspective, we're always going to want to identify those people. And because they're working with the public and with multiple members of the public over time, we're going to want to get to those people as quickly as possible. But customer logs could have limited value if there aren't enough disease investigators to use them, said Stephen Mooney, assistant professor of epidemiology at the University of Washington. It seems to me that if I were to, re- to register my name somewhere and then find out that there was a person who was known to have the disease who was in that place, and I should have been contacted, and no one made an effort to contact me, even though I made the effort to register myself, I would be pretty upset about that. If the authorities are going to require places to maintain registries, they also need to be resourced well enough to be able to use those registries when when the time comes for them. Oregon set a goal of training at least 600 contact tracers. For now, the state has around 100 who can do it, and counties are hiring their own contact tracers. Of course, Oregon's requirement that businesses store and share their customers' personal information has some worried about personal freedoms, privacy, and the risk of data breaches. When reopen rules in the state of Washington initially required that reopened businesses would have to keep customer information, the ACLU of Washington argued that it was an invasion of privacy and would have a, quote, substantial chilling effect on people's freedom of association and freedom of expression. Those civil liberties concerns influenced Washington to make an about-face. Now gathering customer information for contact tracing is voluntary in the state. The thing is, it does not appear that the ACLU of Oregon has weighed in on customer registry requirements here. Multiple calls and emails for the Oregon chapter to comment for this story went unanswered. Sutton, the Oregon Health Authority advisor, said the contact tracing process is set up to protect the confidentiality of those infected. When contact tracing investigators request customer contact information, they do not reveal the name of the person who might have exposed other customers or staff, she said. Here's Sutton. It would be the, the public health epidemiologist investigating the case, calling up and saying, you know, there was an exposure at this facility on this day. Could you please, you know, answer some basic questions about the facility? And then could you give us the, the names of, and contact information for people who were there between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m.? And it's always done in that sort of general way to protect privacy. Jennifer Lee, Technology and Liberty Project Manager for the ACLU of Washington, said any contact tracing effort should be designed to end when the pandemic ends. We've seen uh, with crises of the past that uh, surveillance tools deployed to fight uh, specific crises um, often outlive those crises and are repurposed for other other means. So that's really what we don't want to see here. Lee added that contact registries should be voluntary, non-punitive, and accountable to the public. In Portland, I'm Kate Kay for X-Ray.fm. 
Senator Rob Wagner of Lake Oswego was recently named Senate Majority Leader. Senator Wagner and Jefferson Smith discussed the new responsibilities and how to lead for racial equity in this moment. Yesterday, there was an article by OPB about Senator Wagner receiving a $21,000 donation from the PAC associated with the Oregon Coalition of Police and Sheriffs. Here's a follow-up statement by Senator Wagner. Quote, I am proud of my record throughout my time in public service to oppose racism and systems of oppression. As the majority leader in the Senate, I have committed to promote and advance the policies the People of Color Caucus are bringing forward, and I support passing Senator Frederick's police arbitration policy in a special session. Years of work have gone into that proposal and has passed the Senate twice. I spoke strongly in support of that legislation in 2020, which failed to pass in the House when Republicans walked off the job. I'm disappointed that I will need to vote yes for a third time on this policy, and I will vote yes as many times as it takes. We have a moral imperative to pass reforms to uproot racist policies. Black lives matter. The Senate Democrats will ensure the policies we pass reflect that truth. Here's Senator Rob Wagner. Senator Wagner, first of all, congratulations on your ascent, on your putting on the iron gauntlet of power in the Senate. Yeah, it's a little overstated. Uh, I mean, it's uh, I, I like the he runs the state. I with four teenagers at home, <clears throat> I don't even run the I don't even run the remote control in my household. So you use that one, um, but I I do. I'm really happy to have an opportunity to uh, work on trying to advance a progressive agenda for Oregon and to this election cycle win as many state Senate Democratic seats that we have an incredible shot um, uh, all the way up through 2020 through November. So your primary role as Senate Majority Leader is uh, is what? Explain that role further. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking with um, with a colleague of mine, Val Hoyle, yesterday, and she said, I hope you know that your your job is to uh, to uh, advance your and give credit away to all of your caucus members while taking all the bullets. And and uh, I think that honestly, during the election cycle, it is working diligently to try to make the case about why Democrats matter over Republicans. And this election cycle, and this is just during the election cycle, but we have an opportunity to pick up three swing Democratic seats that would put us at 20 in the Oregon Senate, which is a walkout-proof majority. And I know we'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about what that means. And then during the, um, during the actual legislative session, it's supporting and, and helping run a progressive agenda uh, through the legislature, you know, really elevating the voices of my colleagues and the great work that they're doing. We have this moment, and we have this moment that's happening right now in the country. We talked to Senator Frederick, one of your colleagues who had uh, working with the POC caucus, the People of Color caucus in the Senate, in the legislature, had a set of priorities. How should we be using this moment of focus on racial justice? No, I appreciate that. I've been, um, as as many have been, um, trying to understand my role, uh, walking with a lot of privilege to lift up uh, people of color, to try to expand the narrative around Black Lives Matter, 
to help support the People of Color Caucus on advancing legislation around uh, racial equity and holding folks accountable. Um, so I, in, in doing it in a way that doesn't, you know, elevate me in that narrative. So not to criticize, not, you know, not to criticize folks that want to participate, but what I've been trying to do through social media and my role through, um, in, in the Senate is trying to lift up voices, not expound upon how hurt I feel. It's sort of, uh, support to get out of the way, but also double down on our commitment to actually leveraging our chance um, to advance social uh, social policy that's that's going to make a, cha- a real change in people's lives. Senator, I would ask you, um, what steps did you take to bring you to this, this point of understanding? What, what, what personal steps did you take to get her? And what advice yeah. would you give to other people in legislature? Well, I, I would say I've been involved in public policymaking um, through, it's sort of been a life commitment to work on progressive causes. So uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of my story. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, a suburban, overeducated kid who went east to college for a couple years and faced a, a major health issue that forced me to drop out of college and come home. Uh, and then in the mid-1990s, when Bob Packwood was resigning in disgrace, I worked with a group of students to start the College Democrats at Portland State University, and I was sort of, at that time, off and running, um, trying to be engaged in the political process. And so I worked as a legislative aide uh, in the Capitol, and then I ended up lobbying for 10 years for the American Federation of Teachers. I worked at Portland Community College, raising scholarship money for low-income first-generation students. But it wasn't until the election, uh, the Trump election in 2016, that I decided to uh, get off the bench and into the game. Mm. And I, I remember the moment. It was um, it was about 9:30 on that election night. In my, I was you know, drowning my sorrows, watching that black shroud uh, envelop the country. Uh, I came home early from some, what we thought was going to be an election celebration event. And I was waiting in the kitchen for my then 13 year old daughter to come home from an activity that she had at her junior high school. And she she was following every minute of that campaign. And she walked in the door and looked at me and just broke into tears. Mm -hmm. And I went up and I hugged her. And I said, I'm going to do everything I can do so that when I tell you, you can be anything you want to be in this world, I mean it. And the next week, I remember where I was sitting uh, at, the, at the kitchen table, and my mom and my sisters were there, and um, my, my daughters. And by the end of the conversation, they, were, they had a laptop open, and they were working on finding tickets to fly out to the Women's March in D.C., and I stayed home and started running, uh, starting putting together a campaign to run for our local school board. Because at that time as well, with the rise of hate with the Trump campaign, mm-hmm. we saw swastikas showing up on junior high bathrooms. You know, we saw uh, children having the N-word passed on pieces of paper uh, to them in class in our junior high schools. We saw posters showing up in our high school gymnasiums with Jews being pushed into ovens. And 
So I just say, we can't have this anymore. We've got to step forward and make change. And so I, that was the initial was uh, running for school board. And then when Senator Devlin decided to step aside after 21 years of distinguished service, I had an opportunity to run a campaign and get, get appointed to his Senate seat. It's very encouraging to hear that, you hear the personal stories, to hear how these things happened in your life and affected you versus someone brought it to my attention. So thank you for that. Thank you for giving us that. Uh, what are your thoughts about the legislative priorities regarding the POC caucus? And what is the path to get them passed? Yeah, I was, um, I couldn't be, first of all, I'm glad that you had Senator Frederick on uh, here this week. As folks probably heard from him and know, um, Senator Frederick has been a strong advocate in so many ways for uh, racial justice, social justice throughout his entire life. I call him actually the Renaissance legislator because if you if you start talking to Lou about where he's been and what he's done, it's 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 like something out of you know Forrest Gump or something. He's he is <laughs> he has been a biologist and a ranch hand and you know marched with Dr. King and I'm mean, just this incredibly talented person who who at this moment uh, couldn't be better positioned to be able to lead along with Senator Manning uh, this dialogue and so with the proposed legislation I think it is affirming to hear that my colleagues will be supporting their legislative agenda heading into um, the remainder of this year and into the 2021 session and beyond. Will Republican walkouts block them? How do you block out the walkouts? Because that's what happened last time, right? It, it, the two sessions ago, I think that a lot of these priorities, a lot of Lou's priorities, got killed in the Judiciary Committee, or at least blocked in the Judiciary Committee. Then, a little bit later, there were the votes to get them done, but then the Republicans walked out. How do you deal with that now? Well, Oregon is in a, a, a sort of terrible and unique position as being is having a constitutional framework that um, allows for the level of dysfunction that we've seen over the last couple of years. And we have uh, annual, now, annual legislative sessions in the Constitution paired with a two-thirds quorum requirement for attendance. Mm. And so what's happened is the Republican minority has figured out that they can determine the legislative agenda by threatening and now demonstrating on three occasions in the Senate uh, because we have hard deadlines they can uh, just say we're not going to show up and we're going to go out of state and we're going to you know tuck our tail between our legs and there's really nothing nothing you can do so the two things that we're focused on is number one trying to win back a quorum proof majority so that when they walk out, we can still govern for the state of Oregon and make progress on uh, the initiatives that Senator Frederick was was talking about. Uh, and then we also have to figure out how to fix our constitution. We need to have a conversation with the voters about the quorum. It sounds a little abstract, but we have to figure out how to have that conversation. Because right now, we don't have uh, a functioning democracy. When the voices of people who are voting to put legislators in, in office to help pass uh, progressive environmental policy, to help make uh, advancement on equity initiatives. 
when these things are uh, are sidelined, um, we had another uh, bill that we had been working on around sensible gun safety, and that got shelved. I, I just think that you know there's two things. One is show up at the ballot in November and let's get this done. And then the second thing is we need a longer term strategy to fix our democracy. Senator, how did that feel? I know when I first started seeing the news on them leaving the state and like virtually being in hiding and other, it, that the whole concept was completely foreign to me that this is actually something that they could do how did that make you feel on a personal level i mean it was it was blocking your efforts to, to get things done but like personally like how did that affect you well i'll tell you that when you've been around the legislature as i have whether it was being an intern, I interned for Kate Brown, her first legislative session as a state senator, and then I I interned for uh, folks like the Oregon Nurses Association, and um, and then I I worked for the American Federation of Teachers. So I spent a lot of time in the Capitol. There's something that happens when you're actually appointed or elected to office, and you walk into the rotunda and you walk up those stairs, and you feel a sense of real responsibility to your constituents but also just to the state of Oregon I mean it is a a powerful moment I felt that when people walked out that they were abdicating their responsibility but also there's something inherent about threatening uh, a functioning democracy and it was incredibly it was beyond frustrating Mm. it was um, so I'm hoping that it leads to a conversation about lighting a fire under our electorate to want to see change, mm-hmm. to be able to have a functioning democracy. I think there's something to be said, uh, just you know, coming from a voter perspective, when we feel as though there's some, you know, where we're sharing emotions with with our elected officials, and I know there's always that, you know, the challenge to be very well composed and make sure that you're getting the right messaging out and you're not you know (laughs) you're not being uh, offensive or checking off you know any any of the improper boxes but just you know hearing those real human responses and and just just honest like it it upset me because we we don't want to feel as though you know there's this much distance between the people that are working for us emotionally so thank you again for that because i know i just i thought it was it seemed like something out of a TV show. So you, you left your job and you just went to another state and hid out. And then a camera crew had to come find you. Like, what are we talking about? Well, I appreciate that. The, the, um, I do love the fact that Oregon has a citizen legislature Mm -hmm. that people, uh, many people really approach this work as, um, the ability to come in and work together and legislate and then be able to return into civic life and the voices of constituents, the voices of people that will bring their raw emotion and their passion to the Capitol are more important. I will stress this more important than what we hear out of the professional lobby, Mm -hmm. Uh, getting people actually showing up and sharing their voice and their frustration makes, I will say makes more of a difference. Uh, and so I'm proud of the fact that we have a citizen legislature, that people return to their communities and are are really listening to the voices of their constituents. Um, and what I'm hearing is that people are, are sick and tired of uh, people walking off the job, expecting to get paid, and then, you know, killing progressive legislation. Right. Thank you so much, Senator Wagner, for your time this morning. We really appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. Thanks, man. Thanks to Kate Kay and thanks to Senator Rob Wagner for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Talk to you tomorrow. If you have story ideas, you have organizations who need shouts out, send us an email, thelocal at xray.fm. Let's be together while we're apart. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.